It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. Available on iTunes. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Write Dr. Stu a nice review. Give him five stars. Or just listen here on the website. Peruse the website. Lots of videos. There's a blog. There's some YouTube stuff going on there. So lots to do at drstuespodcast.com. And of course, listening to the podcast is uh, probably the most important thing to do. Dr. Stuart Fishbein, my friend, is here. He's Dr. Stu. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me back. It's uh I guess it is my podcast, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. I, I'm just a cog uh, in the wheel. Here. I'm a little tired today because, you know, I was up last night. You know, I, I have two horses. Uh, they're Pasifinos. They're, they're lovely animals. And one of them began to colic last night. And mm-hmm. people don't know what that is. It's that their intestines get a little bit backed up. And they get like very uncomfortable. Constipation? It's sort of constipation. They don't tend to poop. And it's like when babies colic. Everybody knows what babies colicking is. They're fussy and... They're uncomfortable, and that's what was going on. I had to have the vet come out around 9 o'clock last night, and uh, fortunately, we didn't have to stick a tube down the horse's throat and give it some oil because all it did was had, it has what's called a sand colic, which is something I learned about. Is it common? It's pretty common because when, when horses are grazing animals, and they're normally eating, you know, in the wild, they eat grass, which is about 90% water, but when they're on a farm, they're eating dried-out hay, which is like almost 0% water. And they like to take the hay and they like to spread it around their pa- their their paddock. And their paddocks are usually made of sand or dirt. And so, and you know, one of my horses has got like I call it an emotional eater. She always wants to be eating. So she's picking off these little pieces of grass, one of the one of the, oh, dead hay, and along with that, she gets sand. Yeah. And the vet was very cool. He, he let me listen with his stethoscope last night, and you could actually hear the gurgling of the stomach. And then there was this thing like a wave, and it lasted four or five seconds of you could hear it was like sand at the beach. Being bro- brushed along, and I could actually hear it. It was really kind of cool from my medical perspective. But anyway, so she's fine today. Yeah. But I was up with her last night. I got up early this morning. You have two horses, right, Doctor Stu? Well, I started out with one because my daughter was riding. Right. When she was a younger a girl, and the horse that she got, and she was competing in the Pasifina World, and the horse that she had really wasn't good enough for her because she got better. So we got a second Pasifina horse, uh, Candelita who is, uh, was very much for a show horse. Of course, then my daughter got into eighth grade, and she no longer was interested in horses. So Dr. So, Stu found himself <laughs> with, with horses, two horses. With two horses. two horses now. And now they live together. Which, is a, which yeah, the two horses are, yeah, you take one out for a ride, the other one goes crazy. Isn't that sweet? It's like dogs they're very, almost. They're very dogs. connected. Uh, they can live a long time, horses, right? To 30 years? 20, 25, 30. Oh, yeah, 30. sometimes 30 years. Okay, yeah. wow. We are uh, here uh, as part two of our second parter. I, I think it's the first time we've ever done a second parter. Dr. Jennifer Lang is back. She is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. She's not practicing obstetrics. Obstetrics, been about two and a half years uh, since she delivered a baby at a hospital. She has three babies of her own, a girl who's five, a boy who's three and a half. Her baby, baby, her baby, the last one, is two, and she just turned two a week ago Friday. So on last Friday, just about a week ago, actually. And um, we talked about a lot uh, when we had you on last time, wanted to have you back on. We got into talking about something that we had not planned talking about, about cervical cancer and vaccinations and things like that. We didn't get to a couple of other very important areas uh, that you talk about, that you've written about. Let's talk about when you when you were on last time, you said uh, almost in your introduction, I made a note here and wanted to get back to it, but we talked about so many wonderful things that there just wasn't time to do that. Uh, you said that one of the first things you do uh, with your with uh, moms, pregnant moms, you talk about their fears. And I wonder, Dr. Stu wrote an excellent book, co-authored a book called Fearless Pregnancy. Mm-hmm. I wonder what you find in your practice, Dr. Lang, is 
that number one, that primary, that always present fear that a mom to be a pregnant mom has? If you had to pick one and say, gosh, I hear that from almost every one of them, what is it? Well, so I have moved away from working with pregnant moms in my day-to-day practice. But if I had to kind of give my answer to what I think it is, I I think it's that they don't believe that they can actually do this. They, They have a lack of confidence in their own bodies that they are capable of doing this process, which they've really only been exposed to, you know, in the media, these highly dramatized, you know, crazy cars racing to the hospital, waters breaking, high drama, high action, you know, blood everywhere, screaming. They've seen that or they've heard, you know, stories from their friends, frequently bad stories because unfortunately of a lot of the way obstetrics happens, uh, emergency C-sections, all this. So they're just filled with this sense of self-doubt. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And and I I give another analogy would be that if, say, a young girl or a boy wants to be a singer, and early on in their singing career, they're told, you don't have any talent. You know, you can't do this. Or one in a million people make it to being a singer. I mean, if you keep hearing that sort of stuff, or how about you eventually 30, give up. 30 to 50% of people will not be able to produce sound through their vocal cords, but will require a surgery Three. in order to do so. Right. Now, like, I, that's uh, the equivalent, yeah. right? Yeah, I, under- well. I understand that, that analogy, but every little girl I know, so I'm 41, every little girl I know has been told, you'll be a great mom. Society, uh, less so now, more so when I was younger, pushes young girls to be moms. So why would they come to the doctor, the OBGYN, why would they come to their first pregnancy with all this fear about whether or not they can do it when they've heard from their mom and grandma and dad and grandpa their entire life, you're going to be a great mom yourself. You are a great baby. You're going to be great with your own baby. Be- Little girls do hear that. Am I right? Well, of course they do. But, but, but we live in a world, as Jennifer said, which is where you know excitement and abnormal and disasters sell and we talked about this many times brian you know no one talks about the planes that land safely today they'll only talk about the plane that crashes and if you go on the internet if you watch television if you go to the movies rarely rarely unless you're watching a documentary about normal birth do you see a calm quiet peaceful normal mammalian uh, human birth you just don't see that so all they see is the tragedies, the emergencies, the things they read about in the paper. And again, it's like the, it's, you get beaten down with, you get beaten down and beaten down. And what do you know? You don't know that anything. You've never had one before. It's something, it's not like you're an expert at it. This is your first baby. And you're being told by the lady at the checkout stand and your mother-in-law and everybody else that this is what happened to them or this is what happened to their girlfriend's cousins, second cousin's sister. And, and everyone wants to tell the disaster story. And too. everyone wants you to know. connect with you and they do so and they don't know what they're doing and they do it in a foolish way by telling you a story. They, 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 they want to, everyone wants to connect with a pregnant woman. Mm. If you don't, you're a sociopath. So people that want to connect, they sometimes don't realize what they're saying. People don't understand in the media what harm they're doing by portraying these things on television. I think I gave a story once to you, Brian, about a patient of mine who was on a, 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 a lawyer TV show uh, called The Practice. I love that show. And she was having her ba- she was pregnant on The Practice, and she was about 33 weeks pregnant in the courtroom, and she ruptures her membranes, or we, what we would call... Releasing her water. She releases her water. In real life. No, no. On the show. No, on the show, 
She releases her water in the courtroom, and they break for. Com- and she says, "Oh!" And she holds her belly. They break for commercial. After the commercial, they come back, and she's on the floor in the courtroom holding her baby, which looks to be a term baby, wrapped in a receiving blanket from the hospital, which the judge must have just had to happen to have under her desk. How scary! You know, I mean, this is this is how birth is portrayed. That it just. You know, all these dramatic things happen. That's not what would happen, and that's not how it would happen. Mm. But people now are nervous about breaking your bag of waters, being embarrassed, and doing it in front of everybody. And and that's that's not what you have to worry about. These things generally don't happen. That was a big thing. That was a big thing for uh, my friend and co-host Alicia Krause from The Morning Show. I don't know if she said that when she came here on Dr. Stu's podcast, but she used to say to Ben Shapiro, my... Uh, male co-host and 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 me, so it's two guys in there with a lady. She say, "Oh my gosh, I am just so psyched out that I am gonna, my water's gonna break in front of you too, and I'm gonna be so embarrassed." I said, "Don't worry, what do we care?" But I know that was a big deal for her. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Lang is with us, board certified, as I said a moment ago, OBGYN. She does not practice obstetrics. It's been about two and a half years since she delivered a baby in a hospital. Uh, Dr. Stu, of course, uh, we talk all the time about home birthing and and the many, many, many births uh, that you've been involved in in hospitals. But for you, Jennifer, a female, uh, when when, when you became pregnant and you had your girl five years ago, Mm -hmm. I assume you had been practicing for a while before you first became pregnant? So I have my daughter, my eldest daughter, my third year of fellowship for my GYN Oncology Fellowship. So I'd already done a four-year residency in OBGYN. Was was there something, I'm sure there was probably more than one thing, maybe there's two things you want to touch on, that you, going through the process of being pregnant yourself and Mm -hmm. being a doctor yourself, or on on that path, right? And uh, you're always talking to pregnant moms about, uh, what's in their best interest and their baby's best interest or how this is going to feel or what this is going to be like. It must have been almost, I can imagine and only imagine, that it must have been surreal for you. Mm-hmm. You must have taken away, especially from your first pregnancy, a lot of new information that had to change the way you thought about what you may have thought about pregnant moms that you dealt with in your practice because you had firsthand the experience uh, that they were having that you had yet to date not had. That's right. And it was a huge transformation in myself. And um, I had to consciously work on releasing a lot of the fears that I had accumulated over years of those high drama images. And um, I actually did some hypnosis to help me do that. And then I did a hypnobirthing class. Um, and a lot of it was about you know, getting rid of these anxieties coming into the moment, into the body, into the breath. And I think that that has helped me enormously, not only in pregnancy, but in life. as a mom yeah. in life, right. in, you know, as a human, as a physician. Yeah, you did your residency where? In OBGYN? Yeah, it was at St. Luke's Roosevelt in New York City of Columbia. And uh, Roosevelt Hospital was kind of unique in that it had a birthing center one floor beneath the labor floor. So, And the birthing center was completely midwife run. So uh, people would come in and have, you know, normal births, uh, but know that if there were an emergency, they could get in an elevator and go up one floor. And how how often as a resident... Did you get to actually see normal birth? Because, you know, in uh, Abby and Ricky Lake's film, they talked to residents and they got four years and they hadn't seen a single natural, normal, unmedicated birth. You know, I know in my residency program, we were dealing with the problems. And so we rarely 
watched a woman labor through transition because we weren't in the room at that time. Mm-hmm. We'd be called when the baby's head was crowning. When the be- is that another word that we should change the term? Or is crowning. crowning? You know, I guess well, crowning is okay. I guess yeah. it was used yeah. on the radio this but morning. My friend Alicia talked about a pregnancy. We used regal the word, connotation re- to crowning. It. Yeah. yeah, I guess that, that's a that's a that's an okay word then. Right. Okay. But, well, we'll have our committee meeting later and decide which words are okay and yeah. which words need to be. But I but stricken. I'm just wondering well, what was your exposure because you said you had to go undergo a transformation when you had your first baby. Yeah. So obviously you had not seen a lot of that sort of birth. No, we hadn't. And it, for exactly that reason, I mean, we were the residents running the labor floor. So we saw the problems that got transferred upstairs. Mm. We really, I mean, a handful, maybe normal natural births that took place on our actual labor floor. Wow. Elsewise, it was, you know, every, every issue. And many of them, by the way, I believe strongly were created by us. You know, interventions. Were you trained to do breech deliveries at uh, Roosevelt or were you trained to do forcep deliveries or was so it already dying at that point? It was absolutely dying. Um, so, I mean, you, you're trained to deliver a breech by C-section. So how to pull the, you know, how to wrap the fingers around and pull by C-section. Vaginal breech delivery was not, uh, not trained. I had a total of two experiences. Um in, in so many years. In four years. Wow. Yeah. And thousands, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and, and one was literally the 16-year-old girl who unfortunately was very high on crack. At the time of the birth. At the birth, yep. And when she came in, the baby's butt was coming out at us. And even with that, all right, I have this very strong recollection of us trying to wrestle her down to get an IV in her arm in the OR to try to put her to sleep under general anesthesia and do a C-section. Push, and that push the baby back up push inside. Push the baby back up inside. It. And she was so strong, yes. this 16-year-old girl, that she fought us off and she delivered her baby vaginally breached by herself. But we and did. That baby every, was okay. It, yeah, at that time. At that time, I yeah. mean, unfortunately, had you know some withdrawal issues. Yeah, and, right. Of you course, know, drug related. But but that was the experience that one of my fifty percent of my vaginal birth breach experience. That's scary. Was, it was very scary. But but the plan was, and it was that the direction of our attending physicians was, you know, general anesthesia to cut this woman to prevent anything to prevent this baby from just coming out the way it was it, trying very hard to come out. And this is and yeah. these are the and these people that do this are the leaders of my profession. Yeah. These are the these are the people that are training the future doctors who who you know if you push the baby back up inside first of all that's not easy to do. You're still going to have to ba- deliver the baby breech. You're still going to have to cut a hole big enough to get the head out because they're going to worry about the, the whole fear is about the head getting stuck but if you know what you're doing and if you know how to put piper forceps on this would have been a yeah. great case to be able to do well teach the residents how to deliver breach delivery well, and maybe it would have been when this particular case had to step back and not try to do anything because this woman well, was true. in a state but let's follow this this girl's story forward so at 16 she's had i believe this was her first by what we could glean from her history so imagine we had done a cesarean section would she have needed her second when she was 17 and her third when she was 18 and then she's got a placenta accreta and then she's rupturing her uterus and baby number four is hysterectomy and hysterectomy and transfusions yeah i mean just imagine this is the absolute worst person to do a major abdominal surgery on for this reason, 
right? But that never entered the equation. Oh, never, never. It was, you know, if we let this baby come out vaginally, unfortunately, you know, could we be sued for this? You know, uh, my dad was a cop for 21 years in New York, an NYPD cop. And I used to ask my dad sometimes... I used to say, Dad, um, you know, I'd be critical of the police. I was kind of a liberal young guy. And my Mm -hmm. dad says that my dad has passed away. As opposed to being a liberal older guy now? Right. Well, I'm less liberal now at 41 than I was at uh, 18. You're less young, too. Yeah, right. So I remember saying to my dad, you know, why, you know, cops? You know, I I love my dad very much. But I remember him saying to me, um, Brian, we see people at the worst point of their lives. Mm -hmm. Very oftentimes, police officers see people at the worst moment of their life. Mm -hmm. And he said, you just have to take my word for it, I'm your father, take my word for it, that does a number on you when you see every day so many people, not on their best day, but in fact on their worst day, that's hard. So I would say to him, does it make you cry? Mm. And he never said that it made him cry, but we're talking about cops. Mm -hmm. The situation you described, Jennifer, a moment ago, so emotional, Mm -hmm. it's so sad, it's so sad for the baby Mm-hmm. And it's so sad for the 16-year-old mother. Mm-hmm. Do doctors ever leave delivery rooms, sit where they might sit, and shed a couple of tears? I certainly do. I mean, absolutely. Uh, yes. Yes. And we also process our emotions with each other, and we will, you know, um, what's it called, debrief after yeah. particularly stressful situations. It's like a mission. And, it's like uh, when the yeah. Navy SEALs come back from a mission. Yeah. They sit and they debrief. And yeah. and a lot of times we have to do that too. We don't often get official debriefing sessions, but we have our colleagues or our friends or our family who we can who can we, we debrief with. But yeah, sometimes we shed tears for so that's big, big sadness. Stuff. I mean, and it's tremendous. That's just overwhelming human stuff you deal with. Right. And, and sometimes the tears are for sadness and, and that's true. But sometimes we actually, as I've told you, one of my favorite moments at a birth is after the baby has been born and received by the parents and it's sitting on the mom's chest and the dad is staring at them with newfound admiration for his spouse and for the wonder of his child and I'm sitting in a little corner on the sofa, I'm getting a little choked up right now and I'm just charting or writing notes in the chart and just watching. Uh, That for me uh, is- That's it. I, I get as emotional as, you know, as I could possibly be in a joyous way. I mean, there aren't a lot. We don't. We live in a society now where there's a lot of down. There's, as you said earlier, there's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of things going on that that aren't necessarily happy, and um, we don't all have a happy moment or a happy thought. And this is this is a it's a beautiful moment, and that's what should happen most of the time. Unfortunately, that's not the way residents are being taught. You mentioned a moment ago, Jennifer Lang is with us, Dr. Jennifer Lang. You said that uh, at St. Luke's in New York, I, mm-hmm. I know the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, that they have right underneath one level underneath labor and delivery is a birthing center. That was at, at Roosevelt. At Roosevelt Hotel. That- at Roosevelt Hospital, Roosevelt <laughs> Hotel, Hollywood. At the Ro- can, can you go to a birthing center at the Roosevelt Hotel? That'd be, That'd be uh, a birth- wild scene. Birthing center. would be I, quite I, a weekend. It, that would actually be ideal. It yeah. would be ideal. Mm-hmm. Birth would be better at the Roosevelt Hotel Yeah, they can change Roosevelt it. Hospital. The Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. Site of the first ever Academy of Awards and the birthplace of this year's winner. Uh-huh. Uh, no, so it's, it's birthing spa. <laughs> that sounds lovely. Yeah, that does yeah. sound lovely. Now you said so. There, Roosevelt, one 
floor below is a birthing center. Dr. Stu on this podcast talks a lot about the sanctuary, and you talk about birthing centers. Very quickly, what's available uh, to a mom, uh, to a pregnant lady, and to her baby at a birthing center that wouldn't be available at a hospital? Why the birthing center, I guess, is the question. I'm going to pass this yeah, question this, to you. Okay. Um, there's, there's two Which you can do. You have Everybody mm-hmm. has two red cards. You can pass a question. Well, I could answer it, but he's more qualified. Yeah. There, yeah. there are two types of... When you say birthing center, there are two types of birthing centers. And they're very well explained, by the way, in uh, Ricky Lake and Abby Epstein's second movie called More Business of Being Born. It's, it's a four-disc uh, DVD that you can purchase. But in, in a nutshell, a birthing center like Sanctuary is a, called a freestanding birthing center. In a freestanding birthing center is no more equipment than a midwife would bring to a home birth. It's just basically a different location. It may be because it's more convenient for the family. The family may live in a, in a very tiny apartment with narrow walls, or they may have pets or other kids or something where they don't want to give birth in that location. Or they may live high up in, in the canyons or something where they're far away from Less emergency. accessible. Right. So that's a freestanding birthing center. It's just essentially being in, in our living room instead of their living room. I see. A birthing center like Jennifer was talking about at, at Roosevelt Hospital is is different because it's got the facility of the operating room and the uh, advantages of having those things available right upstairs. The disadvantage, of course, is, is that it's in the hospital itself, which then puts it under the same sort of administrative restrictions that a lot of people want to avoid by going to a hospital. They're very, very tightly uh, regulated as far as with the heart rate tracing is a little abnormal. You've got to go upstairs. If, the, if there's a little bit of poop in the fluid called meconium, you got to go upstairs. They have all these, you have to have an IV, you have to be monitored more frequently. There are certain risk managers and things like that that control them. So it's a little more rigid, but if you have a choice between that and a hospital birth, that would be a winner every time. Mm. It's different because then people that have the, the home birth idea or a birthing center, a freestanding birthing center is more of the non-interventionist sort of situation. I see. Would that be fair? I think that's very fair. I mean, the other thing about the in-hospital birthing center is, I mean, imagine you're running a a marathon and you know that if you just, you know, step a little bit over here to the left, you could get in this car and it could take you to the finish line. You know, like... Yeah, right. That's a negative then. Yeah, I think that the... Because you know the epidural is right upstairs. Yeah, because, I mean, birth... Now, it's, I believe, a different experience for every woman and I, I didn't have the experience of feeling pain but that's just personal and had a lot to do with the hypnosis I was doing but um you know some women do get to these difficult points and if somebody's like do you want an epidural do you want an epidural they'll take that and then that can just begin this whole cascade of in my opinion interventions which can lead to outcomes that aren't ideal yeah and I don't know enough about the in-hospital birthing centers to know whether the midwives there, which are certified nurse midwives, which are slightly different than licensed midwives, mm-hmm. but the certified nurse, whether they, you know, you, you, you don't know what you're going to get. You may get a midwife who is very natural. And you may get a midwife who, who, you know, is pushing the epidural or saying things like that, which then, you know, you eventually get yeah. succumb to it. Dr. Jennifer Lang is with us here on Dr. Stu's podcast. She's board certified. Uh, in obstetrics and gynecology. She's not practicing obstetrics right now. She has three babies of her own. Two she had at home, and uh, she stopped two and a half years ago delivering babies at hospitals. Uh, we have talked a lot about a, a lot of important things, but something we haven't talked about that is really important to you, information you share uh, with pregnant moms with whom you interact all the time is the importance, and of all the folks we've had on the podcast, and we've had a lot, uh, you seem to be the person... 
who really places uh, a premium on healthy eating, on diet, on healthy foods, not just for pregnant moms, but for like 41-year-old radio guys hosting Dr. Stu's <laughs> podcast. I've heard some you know, rumblings about that. So uh, let's, yeah. let's take it first. Healthy food uh, for pregnant moms, well, yeah, that's a natural, right? You would think that it would be. Um, and I think that a lot of women become more aware of what they're putting into their body when they know that it's being mainlined to a developing fetus inside of them. Um, although it, it sometimes surprises me what I see pregnant women you know, drinking a Coke or something. Cause yeah. I feel like, well, would you feed that Coke to your infant when they're sitting in their high chair? Would you pour it into a sippy cup? And because you're kind of essentially right. doing that when you're S- drinking the Coke, $6 burger from Carl's like that's a right. shocker, right? You know, yeah. the Western star you're going, darling, what are you doing? Eating that? <laughs> well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's back off for a second. Okay. You know, if you have tomatoes and lettuce on that burger, and, yeah, you know, and it's a good, French fries are a vegetable. Well, you can right? well so no, you guys ketchup, get, ketchup is a vegetable. You guys get into it on this because I think Dr. But I don't, I don't think there's anything necessarily stuff. wrong with with a nice a nice whole wheat bun and a and a, and a, some lean ground beef. I think that, that there's nothing unhealthy totally about that. I mean, is well, there? Well, we we can debate this. So so where do you want to start? Go I mean, obviously you, yeah. obviously you wouldn't give your toddler or your newborn okay. a hamburger but that you you can't compare it exactly to the same thing as giving okay. them i mean factory factory farmed beef that is filled with hormones antibiotics um i mean you could definitely argue about the uh, well in my field now that i'm doing mostly cancer work you know the cancer risk associated with high consumption of red meat i think particularly gi cancers that's hard to argue um I could say a lot about the wheat bun. I mean, wheat is one of the highest glycemic index foods around. Uh, Two slices of whole wheat bread raise your blood sugar higher than two tablespoons of pure sugar. So it is broken down very quickly into sugar in the body. Um, And yeah, I mean, you could talk about the effects of sugar on a developing fetus. So in the first trimester, it can be literally toxic. So much higher miscarriage rates amongst diabetics. See how, see, yeah. how, see how smart this woman is? She's brilliant. Yeah, but but this is good because I actually don't like whole wheat anyway. <laughs> I know you don't. You're a little more like me on this I like, stuff. Yeah, like this, it's the Italian bread at Subway, not the whole wheat Now, bread by the way, Subway. Dr. Stu, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but wasn't there a time on a podcast here that we were doing, you know, weeks or months ago where I got you... This, at, yeah, this, this, is where, this is where he goes after me. This, here. No, I'm not going to go after you. Didn't you sort of hear, and, and Jennifer <laughs> Lang was not here, talking about healthy foods for moms and for people who aren't moms or ever going to be moms or even ladies. Didn't you sort of say something when I talked about my own mom and how she smoked? Didn't you sort of say something to the effect of, eh, a few cigarettes ain't so terrible? Yeah. I did. I said th- I said th- things in moderation generally oh, generally are not going to be something that is going to cause a problem. I don't want women to have to sit there and perseverate and worry that they got some secondhand smoke in their face or they had alcohol before they knew they were pregnant or or if they, you know, if a, if one cigarette in the evening makes them feel better. I know that sounds like a uh, uh, what's the word where it's like it's sacrilegious to some people who believe that that's absolutely wrong. But again, I think that the body is a great filter. Yeah. I think if women in uh, poor countries with poor water, poor hygiene can still give birth and to babies that are generally healthy, I think the body filters these things. And I just don't want, I think the stress 
what I might have said, Brian, mm-hmm. is the stress of worrying about what's going in may set off a humoral uh, mm-hmm. uh, endocrine factor in your body that's worse than the problem itself. So, Jennifer, isn't, and it, Jennifer's po- nodding. isn't it possible that Dr. Stu articulates very eloquently, mm-hmm. perhaps, he didn't say it, I will, the overreaction that maybe some who champion this great cause that you bring to us today mm-hmm. uh, fall victim to? I, I agree with him in the sense of, you know, moderation. Um, and I also agree that there are some people who take healthy living, healthy eating, healthy, you know, to an extreme and where it causes them so much stress that I absolutely agree with you. The stress of worrying about every little morsel outweighs and the cortisol produced that is going to be immunosuppressive. And now and there's cause, f- physical harm being yeah, done. Now that that actually might overall be be worse i mean i've then, had i've had a mother call yeah. me because she forgot to take her prenatal vitamin one day and she was freaking and out and she was nervous about that yeah now how did she get that way i don't know but you were going to say you were going to go yeah. on and say i interrupted okay. you really. however i think that if you just look at america and the way we eat and obesity levels and the food that is available to most people um, I think it is by far the minority of people who are so obsessive about healthy food. When you talk to pregnant moms yeah. uh, in, in your practice, do you, or, or to ladies in your practice, you talk about healthy food, do you present finding healthy food options as somewhat of a challenge? I, I don't. I think it's the easiest thing in the world. Cool. Um, if, if you know, if, and and. If you know what healthy food is, and that's the hard part. I understand. Seriously, you ask me, I'm fat. Uh, People who listen know that, you know, I'm a fat guy. You? Randy, please, with the sarcasm. So uh, I had somebody once say to me, Brian, here's what you need to eat. More colors. Yeah. You need more colors on your plate. There's dark hamburger meat and there's white rice or a white potato you need more color on your plate that's good advice so that's something i've tried to do yeah so what i've done is i've spray painted the plate a whole bunch of different colors so jen since since you know so much about this um tell tell me and and my listeners who who happen to sort of have grown up on meat and potatoes right what is the difference when you go to the grocery store and you see something that says organic Mm -hmm. or something that says free range Mm -hmm. oh um how does that You know, I mean, should you definitely buy organic or if I get celery that's grown regular or celery that's organic? What's the difference? Okay. So the best way this was ever explained to me is organic food is food. Anything else is food plus chemicals. And if you really think about it, that is the case. Okay. So if you're buying organic... Um, it's, it's not genetically modified. You need, you need to have no GMOs in your food to label it USDA organic. Um, you need, if it's a meat product, uh, that they have not been injecting hormones into those animals. They've not been giving them routine antibiotics, not antibiotics to treat an actual infection that they have, but routine use of antibiotics, which if you ask me, I mean, Talk about uh, protecting your children. I mean, if you are consuming antibiotics in your food products throughout your life and your baby is being exposed to that and then they have an actual infection where they need those antibiotics and they are resistant because they have been flooded throughout their lives. I mean, that's a real health issue. And why would that resistance surprise any thinking adult at that point in exactly. their life? Exactly. However, 
it continues to surprise many thinking adults. Well, there aren't, you know, there aren't that many thinking adults. No. Oh, see, I've learned a lot no, here. No, no. Well, or and doctors are other equally, than the listeners to the, the no, doctors. Too doctors podcast. are equally responsible. Oh, you totally. know, I mean, the misuse of antibiotics by doctors who don't want to take the time that, to go into the reasons why somebody might have actually a viral infection, not a bacterial infection, and doesn't need an antibiotic. That brings up a great study that I, I can very briefly. Um, there was a study when I was in medical school residency that I read about or heard about, where they did a study on people with uh, viral Ill- like colds. Yeah. And they brought them in and they had them see one doctor mm-hmm. who spent 20 minutes with them explaining to them about the difference between a bacteria and a virus and explained to them that they, all they need is symptomatic relief and if they just take care of themselves in a couple of days, they'll be better. Mm-hmm. And then they saw another doctor they spent less than four minutes with who gave them a prescription for antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And then they surveyed the patients afterwards and asked them who they felt was the better doctor and the one that gave them the prescription was universally the better doctor. That's right. Yeah, and that because people want people stuff. want action. They want stuff. People they, want they stuff. Want yeah, pills. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean that, that Or at least a pen that says Cialis on it. Right. You know, the pens are nice too. No, I wanted to yeah. I wanted to take advantage of your expertise in in gynecologic oncology or, or women's cancer to ask you a question about nutrition and the patients that you're now seeing because you're not doing OB anymore. You're mainly doing well, you're only doing lapros- uh, gynecologic surgery and dealing with. Uh, you don't. Do you do chemotherapy too, or do you? No, I refer out for. You chemo. refer out for chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how listeners and other people w- would want to consider as they're getting older, the the people in their 40s and 50s and 60s, how who've been eating badly all their life? Mm-hmm. Can they do something? Absolutely. What can they do immediately? Uh, they can become a normal body mass index. So, uh, you know, you can go to Google and uh, BMI calculators, look at your height and where you fall on the curve. Are you I underweight, normal I, weight, obese? I did that. I, I thought my number was the national debt. I got confused. <laughs> I think I was on the wrong website or no, maybe I, I wasn't. I think yeah. your BMI should not be the same as your age, though, Brian. That's the truth. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you for that. Right. So, so there are things, practical things. Go Absolutely. on Google, research BMI. Yeah. See how you square so up. for cancer risk, I mean, we could eliminate between 30 and 40% of all cancers by just maintaining a normal body mass index. Obesity and cancer are so clearly linked are there specific, for so many reasons. Are, there specific can- are we talking about estrogen-related cancers? Not or, only. Or, or more other cancers, too? Other cancers as well, mm-hmm. but some of the hormone-driven cancers like endometrial cancer, like breast cancer, obviously fat produces estrogen. So it drives those cancers. This has been very interesting. Dr. Jennifer Lang, when we last spoke, you gave uh, Cure Cervical Cancer, the website. What is it? CureCervicalCancer.org. Dot org. Right. Okay. Because cervical cancer, of course, something near and dear to you and, and the mm-hmm. research being made and all of the efforts underway uh, to, uh, to prevent cervical cancer from taking lives of women in other parts of the world. And the healthy food is really interesting. I learned something, Dr. Stu. Organic food just means food. If it doesn't say organic, it means food plus all the other nonsense they put in it. I'm going to think that every time I'm in the supermarket. What did you think organic meant before today? What I thought it meant, here's what you want to be, you want me to be honest? Yeah. I thought like organic chicken meant that they let that chicken run around like in a nice place in the sun before they slaughtered it for me to eat it. Okay, then what did you That's think? What I, and I'm not dumb, by the way. I mean, I'm not the sharpest right. knife in the drawer. Okay, Brian. But I'm not a stupid guy. You think that's what organic means. What do you think free range means? Oh, free range means they just have more space to run around. I think. I mean, free range means like no leashes, no collars, just you know, just like let them do their own thing. They're chickens. Yeah. They're gonna kill them and eat them at some point. Let them enjoy themselves. 
And I was also saying, am you know, I wrong? As I, as a tra- uh, when I trained, I, I I spent four years in medical school, four years in residency, never had a single lecture on nutrition. So listening to Jennifer is inspiring to me. And and I always thought that organic meant that they sort of grow it with natural fertilizers, but I guess that's not necessarily true either. They don't use any pesticides on organic. They and they're not using petroleum-based fertilizers, or you know, so or, I, or I, other. Well, what are they using? Like just using manure? What are they using? Yeah, yeah manure can be. A but great do they have to get fertilizer. manure from a free-range cow then? That, that's right, the manure itself. It's a cycle. Yeah, because if that cow is pooping out the chemicals that's been fed it. Right. So, yes, yes. So, it, it's, you follow Washington, it D.C. is shipping in a lot of the manure. It's a crisis situation. <laughs> They're sending a lot of it in. Really, so, it's very interesting. Wow. Well, I Thank learned you. a lot about organic food. I mean, I'm have a tough, I'll have a tough time eating a lot of it, but I'm going to research a lot of it now. It actually tastes better. Yeah. It looks like it's doing uh, miracles for you. You think an organic drive through would, would ever do well in L.A.? <laughs> Okay. Funny uh, enough, how come is, they don't have one? My, my husband has been on this for years. He's like, we need to do this. We need a, an organic, healthy food drive-through. Oh, I love that. What you do know? we call it? Well, let's not give our billion-dollar okay. ideas he out. Has, on the podcast. He has a good idea. So Does he maybe, have a decent you, name? Can it's I, a great one. Oh, see, yeah. I'm good with names. I would say maybe I could get in for there for like 250 G's just for the name. <laughs> just pay me one time and use the name forever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just think, I, I personally think, you know, because I spend so much time in my car, right. as do a lot of Angelinos because we spend so much time in traffic in the city, that I end up, because of my time constraint, going from one office to the next or a delivery oh, to home it. or whatever, I've seen that it. I have to go through, uh, you I know. I witnessed it. And I try to pick, you know, I try to pick stuff that's slightly healthy. Oh, but do you? you can, yeah. Okay, what's slightly healthy I for think, you at McDonald's? El Pollo Loco, I think. Sometimes I'll have their... They're uh, they're just their chicken. Yeah, but you did a burger in front of me that was well, even more impressive than the one I had. Do you remember that, Stuart? Uh, well, how many times did I do that? <laughs> yeah. It's probably the last. You time should you've see done me it. when I go to Staples Center or, or Dodger Stadium. Enjoy a I mean, game, right? A Dodger. Yeah, I'm not, but I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'm going to do this. Hey, my dad is 93. Right. Ate crap all his life. God bless. Smoked him. cigars. You know what? I mean, sometimes good genes trumps everything. Right. No. Well, but you know, <laughs> I look at your face and I thought she's looking at me like. Don't what bet are you on talking it. about? Right. What are you talking? Here's the thing. So he he was in utero pre World War II, grew up during the most sensitive way times. Pre, way pre World right. War II. Right. So during the most sensitive times in his life, he was eating organic foods. Okay. Yeah. World War II and post. That's when the chemical when invasion and the industrialization of our food supply started. All right. So during the most important formative years of his life. He ate organic. Do you think that now that we've been doing this for 40 or 50 years, do you think, or, or even longer, do you think we're going to see the lifespan of Americans it's actually happening. start to go the it's other happening. way? Absolutely. Oh, no, I this haven't is, heard that. This is the first generation that will ever have a projected life expectancy less than their parents. Really? Right now. Yeah. Right now. Oh, that so, I've heard. That yes. I've reported That's on. probably global warming, right? So I was, raised on, <laughs> I was raised on fast food and processed everything. Am I going to make it to 50? Uh, Randy, you f- well, hold on. Excuse me, doctors. Mm-hmm. He, he's perspiring from the floor. Are you, dude? You're. Are you- oh, there he goes. He's down. He's down. It happens sometimes. But fortunately, doctors. we have at least right. two of us that know CPR. Who clearly have sprung into action to to help the victim here, <laughs> right. Doctor well, Jennifer Lang. Really, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for the work you do. Thanks for letting us know. Thank you for that easy to remember definition about organic food that I'll never forget mm-hmm. ever again. What is it? Huh? It's organic food is just food. If it doesn't say organic, it's food plus whatever else some nutty scientist decides to inject into it. Very good. Correct. Very clear. Say yes. very clear. Very clear. Got it. Dr. Stu, as always, my friend, please. If you want to email Dr. Stu, ask Stu at gmail.com. That is the website. Right here on drstewspodcast.com, you can 
peruse the YouTubes and the videos and the blogs. Go to iTunes, subscribe, give them five stars, write a nice review. And on behalf of Dr. Jennifer Lang and my friend, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, I'm Brian Whitman. Thanks for joining us on Dr. Stu's podcast. Thank you.